believers together in the common cause of the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful for the cross. We are thankful that we're here, God, not because of our own righteousness, but, Father, because of the righteousness of Christ. But, Father, in Him we stand, innocent of our sins and adopted as your children, called out of this world and set apart for your glory and honor and service to you. Father, we pray tonight that, Lord, all of those things would be refreshed in our mind and that we would be renewed both in our passion and, and affections toward you and in our passion and affection for one another and for the ministry you've given us. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come together tonight, all of you, I think, by this point will know we come because of a significant event in the life of our church. We are not only setting aside and commissioning new deacons, we are also installing our first church elders. Both of these groups will be serving the congregation, though, in different ways. The elders will be serving us as pastors, as spiritual leaders responsible for the oversight and care of our souls. The deacons will be serving in a very different way. They'll be serving us as those working behind the scenes, caring for us in very practical ways that encourage us and help us maintain unity as the body of Christ. Tonight I want to look to God's word and offer a charge to both groups, to elders and deacons on how they are to serve this congregation. But then I also want to offer a challenge to you as the church as well and how you are to respond to those that would serve this congregation. Unless you think we're going to be here all night, we won't, I promise. We're going to find all three charges from one passage, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And I encourage you to take your Bible and turn there now. And if you didn't bring your Bible and have it with you, you can look at the song sheet on the right-hand side. I provided the text that I'll be reading for you tonight. As you're turning there or getting your sheet, let me just lay out the context of the passage for you. Jesus has just announced to his disciples his intention to go to Jerusalem. For much of his ministry, Jesus avoided Jerusalem, but now he is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He is approaching the time of the cross. And according to the plan of God, he says, now is the time that I will head to Jerusalem. And Jesus' disciples knew that that was the most important decision Jesus could have announced. For them, Jerusalem represented the focal point of God's kingdom. So for Jesus to truly be the Messiah and for him to now set his direction toward Jerusalem, it meant in their mind that he was going to establish his earthly kingdom. That he was going to bring liberation to Israel from her enemies, her Gentile rulers. At least that's what the disciples thought. The problem is they did not understand in the providence and in the sweet plan of God the reality that Jesus going to Jerusalem meant he was going to establish his kingdom. He was going to be enthroned as the king of Israel, but in a way they could never possibly imagine. Instead of liberating them from Gentile oppressors, he was going to, to liberate them from their greatest enemy, sin. National sin, personal sin, sin that would keep them from God forever and ever. Nevertheless, as they, as, as they are on their way to Jerusalem, Mark tells us what was on the disciples' minds. And so I would encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that in and of itself is gall, isn't it? Okay? Jesus said to them, and I, I don't know if he's going to frown or if he's going to smile, but he, he says to them, What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? That is the cup of God's wrath against sin. The baptism, not just of identification with Israel, but identification to the point of bearing their judgment from God. Are you able to do that, Jesus is asking them? And of course they don't know. But they say, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is prepared for those for whom it, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, that is the remaining disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must also be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning as we look at this passage, I want us to see two things. First of all, I want us to see worldly greatness. Worldly greatness. Again, James and John, these sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder as they're called, they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And when he says, what is that? They say, grant to us to sit in your glory, one at your right hand and one at your left. And their question really reveals how little, even, even after years with Jesus, how little they have learned from him and their understanding of the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, we can't throw stones too much because their understanding of greatness is very much what our understanding of greatness in the church sometimes falls into the same pattern of thinking. A self-centeredness. Apparently, James and John have looked at their life and looked at the lives of the other disciples and they have determined that of this twelve, they're the best. They are, in fact, the greatest. And because they are so great, their merits... Their merits deserve such an unabashed request. They believe Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to establish finally his kingdom. And they believe their greatness should give them places of prominence in this new messianic kingdom. This would have been the right hand and the left. The seats next to Jesus' own throne. Seats of honor and of power. And there was no question in their minds who was the greatest of the, of the disciples. They were the greatest. They were the greatest. And you see, here's where people really get into trouble, isn't it? See, we should never look to somebody else to judge ourselves. Because that's where we get into trouble. We can't look at the faults of others and begin to make ourselves feel great. Because in a couple of obvious errors, areas, we may have, be more on top of things. The truth is, there's always somebody that's going to be better than you. This was driven home to me in a very humorous way. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite speakers, D.A. Carson. And he was talking about being at a conference. And somebody asked, during the Q&A time, they were asking what these conference speakers did for the devotional time in the morning. 
You know, this, this young guy was a seminary student, and, and he was saying, what is, the, what is the best time to have devotions? What is the most effective way to do devotions? What, and, and, and you can tell they're, they're kind of like, well, it's kind of subjective. And so finally the, the student asked, well, what did you guys do this morning for your devotions? So one guy, Carson, he says, here's what I did, and here's what I usually do. The second guy says, here's what I did, and here's what I usually do. And the third guy wasn't going to say anything. And so the speaker said, and Dr. So-and-so, what did you do this morning? And he was sitting there, and uh, Carson said he kind of looked down like he didn't really want to answer. And he said, well, this morning for my devotions, I read Isaiah. He didn't read from Isaiah. He read Isaiah. He got up early enough to seek the Lord's face reading 66 chapters of God's Word. There's always somebody better than you, okay? Just, just understand that. James and John, though, didn't think there was anyone better than them. They thought they were the greatest. And because they believed themselves to be the greatest, they thought they should be recognized as the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. They aren't concerned to support Jesus and his impending suffering and death. Rather, in the pridefulness of their hearts, they crave power and authority and praise from others. They crave what they have defined as greatness. And we can't be too hard on James and John because... Mark tells us when the other ten hear what happens, they become indignant, indignant. And Jesus takes the opportunity and he says to them, come here, let me tell you something. You well know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, how they lord it over the other Gentiles, how they lord it over their subjects, and how their great ones exercise authority over them. And there's this great ironic twist. You have these disciples who are all good Jews, and they absolutely hate the fact that they are under the authority of the Romans. They resent it. And yet Jesus is telling them, you don't understand. You've become the very people you despise. Your ideas of greatness are now the exact same as those that lord it over you. Do you not see the conflict in your hearts, Jesus is telling them? Do you not see you've become the very thing you hate, the very thing you resent and despise? Well, that's worldly greatness, a, a prideful desire for power, a gloating that comes when you've got power, a lording it over other people. You are an authority and you let them know it. And you love the authority and you desire to pursue it even more, gaining more and more authority, more and more power, ultimately more and more glory for yourself. That's worldly greatness according to Jesus. But he also says... Look, guys, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, then you need to understand what godly greatness looks like. Jesus says the kind of greatness the disciples value is not the kind of greatness he is looking for in his kingdom. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Why, Jesus? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Anytime the word must shows up in the scriptures, you should probably take note of it. I mean, you should probably circle that and write a little must. It, it, it's not sometimes, it's not in the right circumstances. Jesus says, this must take place. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you need to display humble service to others. 
It's the exact opposite of the mindset that the disciples had. They want it to be great for the recognition and the privilege that it would bring. But Jesus says, no, no, greatness in the kingdom is measured by how much you serve other people. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's about humility and servanthood. Two concepts that run so countercultural, both to their thinking, first century thinking, and 21st century thinking today. But remember who's standing in front of them. Remember who's telling them what kingdom greatness looks like. It's the one by which all standards of greatness are measured, Jesus Christ himself. And what does he say? He says, look, even I did not come to be served. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. The ultimate service giving his life as a ransom, that is a payment that would be serve as a deliverance. He literally purchased salvation by his death on the cross. He made a payment for freedom of sin to those who were enslaved to sin. He died for his people. Here Jesus is showing that he is the long-promised suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah spoke about. He is the one who bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He is the one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. And what he is saying is that rooted in the very heart of Christianity itself, in Christ on the cross, is this idea that greatness is defined not by, not by how superior your intelligence is, not how quick your wit is, not how much authority or power you wield, by how much you serve others. This is genuine humility and greatness as God defines it. And so this evening, I want to call you elders. I want to call you deacons. I want to call you congregation to a life of greatness in the kingdom of God. Not greatness according to the world standards, but greatness according to the standards of the Savior. So elders, what about you? What about you? What is this going to look like in your ministry? What is it going to mean, brothers? Boy, I really wish you guys had sat together, because now I'm going to be doing this the whole time. But what is this going to look like practically in your ministry? Well, frankly, I'm not all that smart, and so I'll turn to 1 Peter for help, because here he lays out exactly, I think, what Jesus is talking about in the context of pastoral ministry. Here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And if you do that, Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He goes on to say, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, those in subjection and those in leadership. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he says. 
You are called, brothers, to shepherd God's people, to provide spiritual instruction, spiritual wisdom, spiritual protection, spiritual nourishment for the souls of this body. And it's possible to do all of that with the wrong motives and the wrong intentions. It's possible to do that with your heart full of pride in the position that you're going to have. Peter says, don't serve that way, though. Don't lead because it's somehow expected of you. Don't lead because you expect to get rich by it. Don't lead in a manner that exalts in authority or tries to dominate other people. Lead instead with the spirit of humility and service. Lead because you feel the call of God on your life to lead that way. Lead eagerly, desiring to serve God's people. Lead by example and with a gentle spirit. When I was in high school ROTC, we used to take field trips to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And the museum there is really cool. Uh, best air museum in this country as far as I know. But we just didn't go to the air museum as being an official cadet institution of the Air Force. We had to go actually on the base. And one of the really cool things was they would already have missions set up where they would uh, basically keep the pilots fresh on flying cargo planes, C-130, these big massive cargo planes. And they would snap in some seats and let us cadets go along for the ride. Okay? Very, very cool for a freshman high schooler, okay? But what was even greater was one year I got cut out of the semester. And that meant when we went to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, they said, uh, Who was cut out of the semester again? This other guy and me. And they said, um, We've talked with the crew, and they will let each of you, one on takeoff and one on landing, sit on the flight deck. Oh, man, are you kidding me? That's great. That's awesome. That was the first time I'd actually ever been in a plane before, and I'm on the flight deck during takeoff. Oh, my goodness, it was great. And I get up there, though, and you know what I notice? There's only three chairs. There's only three chairs that are positioned in this plane with the padding and the armrests and the seat belts and everything. And I'm thinking, do I got to stand up? You know, how's this, how's this going to work? Because there's three crewmen, pilot, co-pilot, navigator. So what, what are you going to do? Well, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of just standing there, just kind of looking around, and they're doing some pre-flight checks and stuff. Then I notice on the side, there's two little fold-down seats. And literally, it's just a, a, you know, a piece of metal that they fold down, and it's got a seat belt, and that's it. These other things are nice, they pad, they swivel, you know. And so I'm thinking, well, that's surely the seat that I'm going to get, right? Well, the pilot goes in, the co-pilot goes in, they're getting stuff together, they got these big massive headsets on with, with the microphones, and they're talking to each other, talking to the tower. Well, then the navigator comes in, and so I move out of his way. He says, no, 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 no. He says, sit down. He grabs his navigator headset, slaps it on my head, he grabs an extra spare pair, plugs it in, pulls down a little bucket seat, and sits down. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, this guy, because of his service, because of his position, he deserved to sit in that navigator seat. He didn't deserve to sit in this little tin can that they had pulled out of the wall. Nevertheless, not because someone told him to, but because he wanted to make the day of a freshman high schooler, he let me have his seat. Now, let me tell you something, elders, by virtue of your position, you deserve respect. You deserve honor. You deserve to have your leadership submitted to with this congregation. But don't serve with that mindset. Don't serve. Instead, learn like Christ, who in all of his glory deserved all the worship in the world. And what did he do? He put on flesh and was born. He was born. The Son of God being born in the flesh. This navigator willingly giving up what is theirs, knowing my motivation is not to get what I deserve, but to serve in humility. Elders, let that be the touchstone for your ministry, the example that is set for us by Christ. 
as you pray for the congregation, as you teach them the word, as you make decisions for their well-being, offer them counsel and lead them into God's will and do it humbly as servants. Now, deacons, deaconesses, what about you? How will this example of ministry look in your diaconal ministry? And someone had asked, that's how you say the word, diaconal, okay? It's just a Greek word. It's nothing to be scared of. Remember how they were first formed in Acts chapter 6. Luke says, now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now it's important to see that the apostles did not see the distribution as food as beneath them. Or as unimportant. In fact, it was just the opposite. They said, we've got to have somebody to do this. It is very important. But it cannot be a distraction to our ministry. God has called us very specifically to the ministry of prayer and the word. So we need some other group that will oversee this need. As the foundation of God's church, they had a specific calling and could not be deterred from it. It wasn't a matter of being better than someone else, but simply a matter of calling. And their wise decision was to gather together a group who exhibited godliness and wisdom to make sure these physical needs were met. And remember why the apostles first called what I would say are proto-deacons, the very first deacons. It wasn't so that they would seek out glory. It wasn't so they would seek out honor. It wasn't so that they would seek out position or fame. It was to meet the needs of the body of Christ. They were not out in front trying to be the leaders and get people to follow them. They were working behind the scenes making sure that those called to be out front were not distracted from their task but could focus on prayer and the word. And yet they were there making sure there was cohesion in the body of Christ. You can imagine this early stage, how easy it would have been. We've talked about this so many times before. How easy it would have been for the church to split. Jewish Christians, Hellenistic Christians over this issue. And the apostles said, we will not stand for it. Therefore, we need people that will act as a spiritual superglue, encouraging and bringing unity to the body of Christ. And so we want to bring these people together, calling them to diaconal service to help fulfill both of these needs. So brothers and sisters, as you are serving in diaconal ministry, you must especially resist the temptation to be small-minded. What do I mean by that? Resist the temptation to, to turfiness, about caring about your area of ministry so much and about your rights and prerogatives in that area of ministry, or even quietly resenting the ministry of others that would interfere and encroach on your sphere of ministry. Don't do that. Don't allow pride to well up in your life, but put on humility and serve with humility. Pastor Mark Dever says the deacons are to be the mufflers, the shock absorbers. Deacons are not, to set, are not set apart to advocate their cause or argue their corners like representatives or lobbyists. Instead, they are to come on behalf of the whole to serve particular needs, yes, but with a sense of the whole, a sense that their work contributes to the health of the whole body. Even more, they are able they are to be able to help others come to understand this particular ministry as part of the uniting and edifying of the church as a whole. They are to be builders of the church by being servants who help to bind us together with cords of kindness and of loving service. It, that's the perfect description 
for me of the biblical deacon. Serve God's people, brothers and sisters. Serve them humbly, without pride, ensuring the needs of the body and the ministry of this church are met so that the congregation can be unified and built up in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what about you? Those of you that are in this congregation that are not here being set aside as elders, you're not being set aside as a deacon or a deaconess. What about you? How are you to follow Christ's example of servanthood when it comes to interacting with these new elders and deacons? Three things. First, you need to be humble enough to let them serve you. You need to be humble enough to let them serve you. There's always the temptation to think, I can do this myself, I don't need any help. And frankly, that is driven by pride, and pride is a sin. You need to be sure that you allow yourself to be served by the people that are here called to serve you. Don't allow yourself to believe that you've got all the answers, that you've got all the best ideas. Remember what we said? There's always somebody better than you in some area, in some way. It means allowing yourself to be open to criticism and counsel when it comes to sin in your life. It means letting someone offer to, when someone offers to help, taking it, humbly acknowledging their service to you. Secondly, you need to make sure that your leaders, especially the elders, take joy in serving you. There is this classic Peanuts cartoon. And Linus is curled up in a chair reading this book. And his sister Linus come, or, uh, Lucy comes in and she's kind of looking at him. And she gets this, this kind of funny look on her face. And she says, it's very strange. It just happens whenever I look at you. And Linus looks up, up from his book and she says, what's strange? And she says, I can feel criticism coming on just by looking at you. I've experienced that. And frankly, it stands contrary to the scripture's teaching about how we are to respond to biblical leadership. Don't, don't force the elders to lead that way. Don't force them to come suit up with emotional body armor thinking, someone's going to come at me and attack today. Someone's not going to be very loving today. Someone's going to be mean and upset and gruff, and I'm going to bear the full weight of it, so I've got to be ready with shields on maximum. No. No, not because it's Pastor John's good idea for these two guys, but because it's a biblical command. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, why should we do that? He tells us, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Brothers and sisters, understand, these two men that are called to be elders will now, one day, have to stand before God's throne and give an account for your souls. How did they shepherd your souls? Did they do it well for God's glory? Or did they do it in a stinky way? Do you want them to be able to stand before God's throne and say, Father, it wasn't always easy. I didn't always do my best. But they made it such a joy to shepherd their souls. It was so easy to love that group of Christians. Or do you want them to stand before God and say, God, I did my best. I didn't always make the right decisions. But Father, you know how difficult it was. You know that every Sunday I came and there was no joy there. Because it was so difficult. Because the hearts were so hardened against our leadership. Which do you want them to hear on the day of judgment? 
how do you want them to come on Sundays, on Wednesdays, to come into your homes for a small group? Do you want them to come with a joyous desire to serve and to lead you? Or do you want them to come because they know it's expected of them? There's going to be a time when I step aside and someone's going to be my small group leader. And can I tell you something? I want them to come with joy. I want them to come early because they want to be there and they want to shepherd my soul along with the rest of the congregations. The final thing, church, be willing to follow the lead that is before you and be willing to serve alongside them. These two fine men called to be elders in this group of new and eager deacons, they can't do everything. They can't do everything. In fact, God doesn't want us or them to do everything. In Ephesians 4, God says that he has especially given pastors and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So be prepared to fulfill your calling, church. Be prepared to be asked and to be led into ministry. Don't resist thinking you can't afford the time, you've got better things to do. No, if Christ was humble enough to take up a towel and to wash his disciples' feet, then it's not beneath you to follow someone into ministry, to sacrifice time and money and energy to do what needs to be done to build up this church and reach this community for Christ. The call then for all of us tonight is a call to greatness in God's kingdom. I want all of you to be great in the kingdom of God, but the way up to greatness is the way down through servanthood and humility. It's about a call to kill pride then. And the best way to do that is to constantly gaze at the cross. Isaac Watts expressed it so well in a song we frequently sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. How can you stand back and gaze at the cross and have any sense of pride. You can't. You can't. And so in seeking to serve like Christ, whether as an elder, whether as deacons, whether as a congregation, let me just say, keep looking to the cross. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself. And you will find pride evaporating and withering like a dead plant. And you will find a spirit of humility and service taking its place. Christ himself humbly served. Let's pray for his grace and commit to following his lead. Let's pray now for that. Father, we are so thankful for the example of Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, for his willingness to humble himself and to serve us by giving up his life on the cross, for veiling his glory before our eyes in human flesh. Father, we're so thankful for what he did for us. And Father, now that he has not remained in the grave, but has risen back to life, as he stands triumphant in heaven as the Lion of Judah that was slain, for people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Father, he is due our worship, our loyalty, and our service. And so, Father, help us always to remember that in serving others, we are ultimately serving you and working for your glory. Father, help keep us in your will. Father, help keep us humble. Help keep us with the mind of Christ in serving others. We ask this in his name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to have Lisa come up and begin to softly play some music for us. And in just a minute, I'm going to have our two, actually right now, I'm going to have our elder candidates go ahead and make their way to the front.
And I'm also going to have our, uh, our new deacons. Actually, they're not candidates anymore. You already voted on them. They're, they're your elders. 